from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Arlene Boji, August 12, 2013. Arlene grew up during the Depression as a devout Catholic. A tragedy struck Arlene after starting a family that put her spiritual search into high gear. Soon after, she became a Baha'i and became an international traveler. I started the interview by asking Arlene where she grew up, and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in Salem, Massachusetts. I, I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed Salem very much. It was—it's kind of a small place, and everybody gets to know everybody else. And when you walk downtown, you know you can say hi, and you get familiar with the stores and things. It was a—it was a happy childhood. I grew up as a Catholic. I was pretty religious when I was a little girl. I used to get up early and go to church in the morning and, uh, and be happy to. I was so happy with my first communion. And it was around, you know, it was a time of the uh, recession or what depression, yeah. And so my wish was when I had first communion was to uh, wish that my father could have a have business because he'd come home and say, no business today, no business today. So that was my wish. And uh, we grew up. We went to church, and um, we went. I went to Catholic school, and then. Um, came time uh, to go to a high school, and I said to my dad, either, Dad, I would, uh, I can't live this double life of a Catholic school, and I said, either I'm going, I want to stay in Catholic school and become a nun, or I want to uh, leave it and uh, go back to, go to a public school and just learn to become a secretary or something. And he said, I'd rather you uh, go to public school. So I did. It was a, a long time. I got married and uh, I had children, and and it was uh, I was around forty, forty four, when I uh, heard about the faith. All right. Before we get there, Arlene, let's backtrack a little bit. What was your father's business? He was re- repairing shoes. Uh-huh. Yeah, he, it was a business that he, that he started, uh, and he had been in that business a long time, and that's how he supported us. We had a home, and uh, I had a brother and a sister. We were never hungry or anything like that, but we were very careful about how we spent money. Mm. My mother used to make all our clothes, and my my sister and I, of course, were the best-dressed girls in town because she was such a good seamstress. And why is it that you felt that you couldn't go to Catholic school and still be a layperson? Why did you feel like if, if you went to a Catholic I was, I high school? On, I was drawn to the the kind of life that the, the nuns were living. It, it, they seemed happy, and uh, everything was planned. I'm, I'm a Virgo, so everything has to be in its place for me. And it just seemed it would be a good life for me. I believed in God, and I just thought it would be a, a good life that I could serve God that way. So was the choice up to you, or was your choice up to your father, or which way you I went? Lifted up, I lifted up my father. Now, why did you do that? He was my father, and I, I felt that he knew me better than I knew myself. 
and he knew what would be best for me. And did you ever think that maybe the other decision was might have been best for you at any time, or did you always felt, well, uh, this is it, it's... Yeah, I'm that's right. For, yeah, okay. I just went in that direction. I never, right. I never felt sorry that I didn't go become a nun or anything right. like that, no. Were you a practicing Catholic all your young adult life? I was a practicing Catholic until I got married. I got married when I was just 20. We were married, and we really didn't go to church anymore. It wasn't important to us. And I was backing off from that kind of life and going into another one. We had some, we had two babies, and then I got to a place where I was looking for something. I was searching for something, but I didn't know what it was. Even when I was a little girl, I might always wanted the world to be at peace and people would be healthy. That, that, this is what I, I wanted the whole world to be, even though I didn't know what the world was. I didn't even know if there was a God or not. I started looking into numerology, astrology. I, I was searching, but I wasn't looking in the place where I should have been looking until a tragedy happened to my life. Okay, before you get into the tragedy, I just was curious, you were a practicing Catholic up to the point that you got married, and then yeah. you you drifted away from the church. Was it just because you were busy, or was it something else that, was it a sudden change from before you got married to after you got married, or was it a gradual change as you were getting yeah. older and going through marriage and f- building a family, etc.? We had to move. We moved to New Hampshire, away from my family and Henry, away from his family. We didn't have a car at the beginning, and we just didn't. We didn't go to church over there, and I didn't miss it or anything. Actually, in my late teens, you know, I would go just because it was the thing to do, you know. But what's interesting is that you were nearly ready to devote your life to it in, as a teenager, yeah. but then. I guess you found that you drifted away from it. That's right. I did. We were married about 13 years or something, and and my husband decided to to go away. He just left. So I was raising the children by myself. The children were heartbroken over that. And my oldest especially, he was heartbroken over that. They couldn't understand, and I couldn't either. Just that... uh, uh, Henry just decided that he didn't want to bother with children anymore. My Mark was just going into high school, and David was probably in the seventh grade. We had a home and everything that we had to give up because he couldn't keep a job, and so he found one for the Smithsonian Institute to go to the island of Curacao. So we gave up everything and went to the Curacao for a year, and then when we came back to the United States, we settled in Florida, and that's when he he decided he didn't want to be married anymore. So he left and went to, um, we got a divorce, he went to India. He stayed there, and then he would come back and visit and think, say he's going to start off again, and then the kids would be happy, and then he would disappear again. And this happened three times, and Mark just died, you might say, of a broken heart. He took his own life, the oldest. Your, your oldest boy. That's, he uh, was a, he was in his teens. He had just yeah. turned seventeen, I think. Yeah. That is tragic. And when that happened to Mark, then uh, I went into a deep depression, and 
I knew I had to stay alive because I had David, and but I couldn't move. And my uh, brother visited me, and he gave me a book, and he said, read this book, and it might help you. So after a while, I picked up the book, and it said in the book to uh, read it three times. So I read it the first time and the second time, and I was in the middle of the third time when um, I decided, well, maybe there is a God after all. I prayed. If there is a God, I said, please show me the way. What was the book? It was by Miss uh, Fox, and it was about Jesus, and I don't remember the name of it. It was all all little stories about the love of Jesus. And the author's last name was Fox. Because I asked that question, I uh, was looking and listening to see what would happen. But what happened was that someone was... I worked as a bookkeeper in a, a company that, that uh, made things. They had about 40 employees there. And I used to do the payroll and all that. And I saw that there was a new man hired. He was getting uh, promotions faster than anybody else did. And he did another thing. He came to the door of my office and he handed me some change, and he said, this is to pay for the paper towels that I use. In the past, my boss would always complain about the employees stealing the paper towels and things like that. And so here's here's a man that took the paper towels, but he wanted to pay for it. Never happened before. So I wondered, who is this man? And uh, the lady next to me on the desk, she said, I know he, I don't know he, she said, but I know he's a Baha'i. And I, I said, what's that? And she said, I don't know, except that I know they don't drink. And I, how do you know? She, he sold me a puppy, and when we offered him some beer, he said he was a Baha'i and he didn't drink. That's all she knew. So when he came next time to pay for something, I asked him what a Baha'i was. So he told me that was a new religion, and he, he started talking about the uh, the principles, and he came, started with equality of men and women, he came to the, uh, the one that said independent investigation of truth, and that hit me there. So I said, maybe this is what God is guiding me. I don't know. So after his third invitation, I finally did, did go to a meeting, uh, a fireside. And when I was there, the speaker, uh, who had been a minister in in California, but was now a professor in the University of Massachusetts. He was such a wonderful speaker, and he spoke about the, the life of the Bob. It was so moving, and it touched my heart so that I decided to continue going to Fireside. Arlene, I have a couple of questions. Do you remember the name of the professor at UMass? I wish I did. Okay, and the other question I had is you said that when the principal independent investigation of truth was mentioned, yeah. that that really was something that attracted you to the Baha'i faith. What was it about that teaching that piqued your interest into the Baha'i faith? I always like to understand everything. And in the Catholic religion, it, it, nothing is explained. I don't know. It just, uh, I just thought, well, gee whiz, I can investigate, and um, maybe this is what I'm supposed to do. Because I, I had asked, if there is a God, please show me the way. So I, I said, maybe this is the way, and that's why. 
And the other question I have is that you mentioned a person by the name of the Bob, and uh, uh-huh. can you explain to oh. folks who that is? The Bob was a prophet that came before Baha'u'llah to prepare everyone to uh, to be ready for when Baha'u'llah came. And just and I, I, I say it's, it's like when, uh, for Jesus, because usually it's Christians that I talk to, and that Jesus had John the Baptist, who prepared everyone for the coming of Jesus, and that this always happens. There's always there's always someone that will prepare the people for when the when the new manifestation comes. Continue your story. You were mentioning you attending your first meeting. You finally decided to go to a meeting. When they saw me that I was interested, they introduced me to two Baha'is, their husband and wife, uh, Nicholas and Jean Janus. One was from Russia and the other one from France, but somehow they met and ended up in Ipswich, Massachusetts. They knew so much. Jean is legally blind and Nicholas is disabled. I mean, he walked with a cane. They told me that I should go visit her, visit them, because I could learn a lot, because I wanted to learn everything, because I was was investigating. And so uh, she said... They're going to teach me how to understand the words of Baha'u'llah and then the words of Abdul Baha and then the words of Shoghi Effendi. The first one would be Baha'u'llah. So who are the other folks that you mentioned? Well, Baha'u'llah is our prophet, and Abdul Baha is the son of Baha'u'llah, and he carried on the mission after Baha'u'llah died. And then Shoghi Effendi is the grandson of Abdu'l-Bahá to continue being our guardian after Abdu'l-Bahá died. So these people wanted you to learn from the writings of these people? Yes. They're all different ways of, of writing. All these had to be translated, except Shoghi Effendi, who went to, uh, to Oxford in England. And so the first book uh, was The Seven Valleys, and it was a beautiful book, and, and Jun had been holding deepenings on Seven Valleys for some years, and she had all kinds of notes and things to help me. And we went through that, and it was so beautiful that actually I have been teaching the Seven Valleys ever since for the last 35 years. So anyone who, Baha'i or not Baha'i, who wants to learn about the progress of their soul, and it's helped up a lot of people. And the second one was the uh, Divine Civilization by Abdu'l-Bahá. I learned how, she, how he was, how he spoke. And the third one was the World Order of Baha'u'llah and True. how Shari Effendi spoke. So you took these informal courses on these works by these central figures of the Baha'i faith? Yes. I was just beginning when I, when I just felt that I should become a Baha'i. She told me that some Baha'is become Baha'is quickly because it, the feeling is in the heart. So they become a Baha'i and the, and the feeling goes from the heart to the head. And others become Baha'is where it takes longer. They go from the head to the heart. And I was the one that just, just I just knew that this was what, what God wanted me to do. And so I became a Baha'i. They brought me to Greenacre, the, the summer school there, not far in Maine, not far from Massachusetts. We spent a week there together, and it was just 
if everything was just beautiful all the time. But when I did, before I made that decision, I was looking for a sign. I wanted a sign. It was, I was working, you know, as a bookkeeper, and my the sign would be that when I would go out for my lunch, that man, I think his name was John, the, the employee who told me about the faith, would be out there. Now, that was not the time that he would be going, normally be out there because his lunch hour was before mine. If he's out there, I'll know this is what I should do. So when I went out there, there he was. So I asked him, "Why? how come you're out here? And he said, it's because I'm late because some of my friends wanted me to cash their checks for him, and so it took a little longer when I went to the bank today. So that was it for you? That was it. <laughs> so did your life turn around after you became a Baha'i? Oh, yes, it turned around. Oh, yes. We formed a, a local spiritual assembly in Salem, and then uh, I met Harold through our business people. He and I fell in love, and it, one day he said he wanted to find peace, and I said, I'll bring you to where you can find peace, and I brought him to Nicholas and Jean, and he learned about the faith there, because I was still new at it, and I didn't you know, know much. I, w- I would always refer to Nicholas and Jean. It was shortly after that he became a Baha'i. And uh, we got married. Uh, we lived in Wenham. And when we were in Wenham, my son became a Baha'i. And uh, he was a, a student at the University of Massachusetts. And had there was a lot of Baha'is there. And they used to have a lot of fun. And uh, they all came over one time for a couple of days. They slept on the floor of our house and uh, served them stew and spaghetti and stuff. And... That, that was really fun for everybody. And then uh, I got sick. I got very sick, and I was laying in bed for a couple of days, and I picked up the, the book called The Wills of God. It's not a book. It's a lot of uh, quotations by Baha'u'llah put in a, in a lovely way to explain the faith, to explain how the spiritual part of faith. And I read that book while I was sick, and then I, as I'm getting better, I'm getting this strong, strong feeling about pioneering. What is that, Arlene? Pioneering is, what, is kind, of, kind of like a, a missionary going off to a foreign country to, uh, to teach the faith or to help, uh, help the people. And uh, that feeling was so strong that I, I had to get up and uh, move around, and I talked to Harold about it. And, and I said, what do, you, what do you think about that? So we wrote to the National Spiritual Assembly and told them and asked them about it, and they wrote back, and they suggested, uh, yes, they would, it would be wonderful if we went pioneering, and uh, there was a course that they were giving, and there was also a course at, at Greenacre, happened to be a week course on pioneering. So we went there to the Greenacre, and we went up to uh, to the course in uh, Wilmette. That's the place where the temple is. So Wilmette, Illinois, is the location of the National Center for the Baha'i Faith, and it's also where the one house of worship in the continent of North America is located, Baha'i, yes. Baha'i House of Worship. And we 
have a house of worship in, in uh, many countries now, one in Germany and, and one in Russia that was now, I guess, taken over by the Russians, but one in Germany and we're built in uh, Australia and Panama, even one on an island of, uh, what was that island? Samoa. Yes, Samoa. Uh, and they're building one, maybe it's already built now, in South America. Yeah, they're building one in Chile. Yeah. I said, where shall we, you know, where are we needed? And because Harold is a background of Greek, his parents came from Greece. He was born in America, but he grew up in a Greek community. He knew something about the customs and uh, a little bit about the language. And because his father was born in Greece, there was a, a connection. So Greece is a difficult country to pioneer. Why is that, Arlene? It's a beautiful country, but it's a Greek Orthodox, very, very strict. That when we went there, we met a teacher, for example, who she joined the Protestant Church of England, and she lost her job. Everything is run by the government there, the hospitals and the schools and you don't just talk about the, the faith. In fact, when we went there, the Hunter had just lost its place there, and they, they, they still wouldn't allow meetings of, of too many people at one time or one place. They would go in and uh, break us up, you know, uh, like when, when we uh, had some uh, Baha'i children coming to us. We used to invite Baha'is to our place. The police would uh, come over to see... They don't want us teaching them anything. They don't want us to be teaching them anything about any other religions. When we first went there, Abel went to get his, you know, because his father was a Greek, to see if he could get his citizenship. And the uh, policeman there, he was just filling out the form, and when he got to religion, he put down Greek Orthodox, and Harold says, no, I'm not, I'm a Baha'i. And that man got very, very upset about that. And when Harold came home, he told me about it. So we said some prayers. And when Harold went back two days later, the man had, he was no longer upset. And so Harold did get his citizenship. Because we were married in America in a Baha'i wedding, it was not recognized in Greece. The Universal House of Justice asked us if we could do something about that. So... So the Universal House of Justice is the international governing body of the Baha'is? Yes. We have the Universal House of Justice governing body for the whole the whole world. Each country has a national spiritual assembly. That would be uh, uh, nine members that are voted in. Then in, the, in each country, before you can have a national spiritual assembly, you need to have a certain amount of local spiritual assemblies, which is uh, where you vote for uh, nine members within the borders of the town. That was the reason we went to Greece, is because they had three local spiritual assemblies, but they needed six to be able to have a, a national spiritual assembly. So when we went there, there were a few in Thessaloniki, that's a town in, in Greece, and a few on the island of Crete. And uh, there were none in the, uh, in the city of Patras. So we decided to move to Patras. 
and build a local spiritual assembly. So how long were you in Greece? Thirteen years. We had to come home. We wanted to stay there longer, but there was sickness in Harold's uh, family, and they needed him. So we, we moved back to America, but we did return twice. We went to help them in uh, Bolos. That was for six months, and the second time we were in the island of Rhodes for one year. And during that time when you were in Greece, it was always difficult to be open about the Baha'i faith because of the strong influence of the Greek Orthodox Church? That's right. I don't know how it is now, but they were were very careful. And if a Baha'i, if a Greek became a Baha'i, it was never in writing. We could not have his name any, anywhere because he, he might be hurt or, or something like that. But it happened to lose, lose his job or something like that. The pioneers there, a lot of them from uh, Persia and uh, Germany and uh, one or two from America that would come and go. So the, we built the, lo- the local spiritual assembly of Patras with um, pioneers. And what year was this, Arlene? We went there in 1974. And it was the same also when you went back to visit for six months? No, then they were allowed to, uh, it, things had loosened up a lot. They were allowed to, to write down their names. And what year was that? When we went back the, the second time, it was in 1995. In 1974 uh, to 83, uh, there was a lot of danger, but they grew up a little bit over there in uh, Greece, but while we were there, uh, we Harold became a volunteer at the hospital, and I uh, started the International English Speaking Club because there are some Greek ladies that like to speak English, and they wanted to learn more English. I was giving lessons to uh, children that to learn English, and so I was learning some Greek, of course. But Harold knew more than I did. I mean, he. he he grew up with it, but that's a tough language to learn. In my club, there we got together, and uh, I learned a lot about the customs in Greece. Like when I had come together, you know, I thought everybody would bring something, so a piece, of, a cake, or something like that. And I learned, I learned that you don't do that in Greece. You don't do that in Greece. When you invite somebody over, you serve, and nobody else does. Okay, that's one thing I learned. And I thought I learned how to do the hand movements from the ladies. Uh, I asked, "Let's do something for the community." And I said, "What shall we do?" We said consultation. And the way the Greek ladies consult is is really fun. They they don't take turns or anything. They just go on like some kind. Of, I don't know how they handle it, but all these key voices are going on at the same time, and they come up with a decision. <laughs> so, <laughs> so tell me about the hands, Arlene. When something is beautiful, you, you, you put your hand out and uh, you hold your fingers in a certain way and, and you put your hand up and you bring it down in front of you. And when someone's telling uh, a lie or something, you, you take your hand and you, uh, and you put it on your chin like you're, you're, like you're stroking your beard. And it's called moosey moosey, <laughs> but you don't have to say it. When they say, uh, how are things going, you, you take your hand and you uh, make it go round and round, which means... Oh, you know, the same old thing, you know, like that. It's okay, you know, three hands and mouth. 
when they say no, they don't nod their head. They put their head back. If it's a really strong no, they'll put their head way back and they'll, go, they'll do the word like they'll do, they'll make a noise like that. When they say yes, they um, put one shoulder up and they uh, tilt their head towards the shoulder. And again, it depends on how far the head goes as how much yes they mean by it. Then when they don't know anything, they, um, both shoulders go up and the hands go, the arms go up. And the hands go up. That sounds like a familiar gesture. That's some of them, but they, you, can con- you can have a conversation without saying a word. <laughs> there was a village, I don't know how many of those, but they communicated by whistle. You know, be one on the one mountain and the other on the other taking care of their sheep. And they would uh, communicate with whistles. They learned to do that when the Turks had taken over the country. Turks took over for 400 years. Everything went underground for the Greeks there. Everything was hidden for such a long time. Mm. Of course, they still hate the Turks because of that. And you said you went to Greece a second time after the first six-month visit? Yes, we went to Volos because we went to... We went to Volos for the six months because they needed someone there to perform the assembly. They had lost someone. And then we went to, to Rhodes for the same reason. We stayed there a year. And you couldn't stay longer? No, we couldn't stay longer. Because of your personal circumstances? Yes. I would have loved to have stayed forever. But yes, if I, if I was healthy, I would be there now. What was the year for your second stint? And, the second one was the, that was the 1995 one. The one before that probably was about five years before that. So when we were in the States, what did you do? When we back, came back from the States, of course, you know, we, we supported ourselves in, in Greece. We came back to the States and we went back to Salem, Massachusetts, and we knew we could never live there because everything was, the homes at that time were very, very expensive. We had hardly any money left, so I bought a book it called "101 Places to Retire." And so we read that we read the, what we would like to have, and we decided we'd like to have a four seasons, but not a place where you had to shovel snow all the time, and uh, a place where we could afford to live. We decided on Delaware. There was a Thumba highs in Dover. I guess I got their address from. Uh, from the National Spiritual Assembly, and I wrote to if uh, how things were and do they need someone, and uh, they wrote back and, and told me how things were, and they said yes, they needed someone to, because uh, Delaware was the only uh, state in the Union that did not have a local spiritual assembly, the only capital. So we moved to Dover, Delaware, and we formed our first local spiritual assembly. And you were retired by that time. Both you and Harold were retired. We we retired before we went to Greece, yes. We sold everything. Mm. I had a business. He had a business. We sold our house. We sold everything. So that's uh, quite an interesting story, Arlene. I was just looking for a way to feel safe, a way to be able to help mankind, a, a, a way to have my wish when I was a little kid, I guess, and when I found the, the Baha'i faith, 
everything seemed to fall into place, and I got to know who I was and what what my life was all about, and I knew where I was going, and I feel so secure and so well-guided and protected, and it's my greatest pleasure to talk about the faith and to give a, a deepening. And what is a deepening, Arlene? A deepening is when someone wants to learn more than just the surface surface information, because there's so much to learn in in the Baha'i faith, and uh, Baha'u'llah has given us the information. It, the books are open. He said that all the information is there for us, and we all have the capacity to to learn it and to feel it. And that the more the more you dive into the, his writings and uh, the explanations that come from Abdul Baha'i and Shariyafendi, the more peaceful you become and more content and more secure you become and the more happy you are. So when you have a deepening that you might take a book or you might take just a sentence. We have a book that's called The Hidden Words that Baha'u'llah Revealed. It gives the truth about religion, not only Baha'i religion, but all religions. It tells you how to live and how much you're loved and how important you are. So do you have a favorite quote from the hidden words you'd like to share? Well, it's the first one that he tells us to do with it. And that's, Oh, son of spirit, my first counsel is this. Possess a pure, kindly, and radiant heart that thine may be a sovereignty, ancient, and imperishable, and everlasting. And what does that mean to you, Arlene? That means that it's teaching me how to live. And it says, have a pure, kindly, and a radiant heart. All I have to do is have a pure, kindly, and radiant heart. I, I studied radiant because I know what pure means and kindly means. I always try to be kind, and I always try to think the best of, of everything. But radiant, I wondered where that came from and how I could do that. And then I discovered that it comes from God. It comes from the heart. And the radiance comes from God. You just allow it to happen, and it happens. Well, Arlene, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Everything all right? It was perfect. Oh, okay. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Arlene Boji, who grew up during the Depression as a devout Catholic, but tragedy ultimately brought her to the Baha'i faith, which turned her into an international traveler. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
Listen Can you hear the sound Of hearts beating All the world around Down in the valley Out on the plain Everywhere around the world The heartbeat sounds the same Black or white Red or tan It's the heart of the family of man Whoa, it's beating away Whoa, it's beating away Whoa, it's beating away Listen Can you hear the sound Laughter All the world around High in the mountains Down by the sea Everywhere around the world Laughter sounds the same to me Black or white Red or tan It's the sound of the Hola 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.